Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, and if you want to use the book that's in the pew or chair, it's on page 1007. This is really one of the most famous chapters in all of Scripture. In this chapter, the writer begins by giving us a definition of faith. And he describes that those who have this faith are committed by God. And at the end of the chapter, he speaks of being commended again. So the, the beginning and the end have these bookends of the commendation from God that faith receives. It is what he is looking for. And so then he begins with Genesis, traces all the way through and then when he gets to judges, begins to just say, hey, time wouldn't I have no time just to tell you. And he names off several people in judges and then just starts naming events, you know, willy nilly all the way through. So you'll you'll see as we go through it that he, he begins and just traces chronologically and finally just explodes in a wealth of examples of this kind of faith. And then the kind of apex of this is in chapter 12, verse 1. Supremely, let us look to our Lord Jesus Christ. As we are surrounded by all of these testimonies of faith, let's look to Christ, who is the supreme example and whole source of our faith. So, a majestic section and uh, quite humbling for us to come to it. We'll simply look at the first three verses uh, this morning. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Thus, God's word, let us pray. <clears throat> oh, Father. Especially, Lord, as we are focusing in a particular way upon this grace of faith, do give it to us, Lord. We know that you alone grant faith. You alone give us everything that we need, even to come to you. Faith and repentance and hope and love. Lord, they are all your gifts. So we come helpless, helpless to be outfitted and equipped supplied and nourished and fed by you, Lord, for we have nothing in ourselves. We trust only you, Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Bless us to that end, we pray. Amen. We'll look at this uh, section in two parts. First, the, the here two key words, the, the conviction or the confidence of faith. So the word confidence and then think of the word creation, two C's, pretty easy there, confidence and creation. But for an extended kind of title, it's the foundational confidence of faith, which is our definition to start off with. And then secondly, the foundation of creation for faith. So we're going to talk about how faith is, is essentially this confidence. And then secondly, we're going to see how Believing that he is our creator is a foundation for all else that we believe. 
So two pretty important aspects of faith to kick off this chapter. And you see right after that, he begins with people by faith, able and then on and on. So uh, the next paragraph, for instance, is just those that lead up to Noah. Uh, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Then we jump to Abraham and we're off to the races there. But right here, these are kind of foundational concepts. This first one then, the assurance, or you could translate that, confidence of things hoped for. The conviction. And notice, both both the things hoped for and the things not seen, both have the same aspect. They're not sitting right in front of you so that you can observe them. Whether they're unseen or they're future, so they can't be seen. But either way, they're not sitting right in front of you. But you have utter confidence that they are there and that it will happen. You have utter confidence and conviction and assurance. You are convinced. That's the point that he's driving home here. And he's... He's saying this particularly to those whose lives are just imploded, just being crushed by persecution. How do they maintain a perspective? He says faith has this conviction of what's really going on. Even though your world is falling apart, you have another view of this world falling apart. And you have a view of what this is all going to ultimately end up, how it's going to end up. And those views define your life. Those views define how you act and how you respond to your circumstances. You are convinced of this other reality in which you're living, even though everything is screaming at you in a different way. And you are utterly convinced of what is coming down the pipe for your benefit. And that's what governs your life. That is faith. The writer of Hebrews says. Owen, I think John Owen and wrote in the 17th century, wrote some of the very best things. And some of the phrases I use right here have come from him and some from others. Uh, maybe a few things from myself. I don't know. I hope not. But uh, I'm <laughs> just kidding. Um, but faith then makes these things real to us, you see. It makes what would otherwise be distant and shadowy and not convincing. It makes them real. It gives them a kind of real existence in our hearts so that we can taste the reality of God. We taste the goodness of the things that he promises us. And we're sustained by those things. They are so real to us, they transform our lives. They give us a sweetness or a confidence or an ability to love and give ourselves away to others. And you look at that person and say, how can they do that? Because they have a confidence in the things not seen. It gives us an endurance and a purpose in the things we suffer. We actually experience the power of the unseen reality and the future promises. Why else has God given us those promises? To give us a real strength, a real sustenance and endurance, a real ability in the end to love as we've been loved, no matter what our circumstance. And faith has that assurance of those things. It has a conviction of those things. So 
Owen says, and I love this phrase, it gives a representation of their beauty and glory to our hearts. A representation of their beauty and glory to our hearts. So that your heart is ravished. You see, your heart is ravished by the things of God. And that being ravished defines your life. Not whether you have this or that thing. It's the ravishment of Jesus that controls your life. Is that not what Paul said when he says, the love of Christ controls us? What is that? Does he see the love of Christ? Is Christ in front of him? No, the unseen Christ ravishes his heart constantly and faith lays hold of the reality of all that Christ has accomplished and will do for him. And so Paul is governed by the ravishment of Christ. So we see them as though present to us. It brings the future glories within our grasp so that our lives are nourished and upheld and transformed. We live in the light of it. And I can do no better than to back up a few verses and just give as an illustration what we dealt with last week in chapter 10, verse 34. Here are these persecuted people as we studied them and they had their property plundered, taken away from them by evil people that didn't. They, they stole all of their stuff. I mean, they lost everything, their possessions, people. And when they had to leave town immediately, people came and looted their possessions. And you can imagine if you were just governed by the things of this world, telling for years to come, oh, you just wouldn't believe it. All the things we lost that day, it was just terrible. This thing my mama gave me that her grandmother and I just lost it. I just I never I just you just don't know how bad it was that day. It just goes on and on. And everybody that comes in, you know, and that just defines their life after that. The day I lost everything. No. And it's so different. Now, I'm not saying you can't tell somebody how bad it hurt. How devastated you would feel, how invaded, you know, and, and uh, uh, ruined. And in, in, uh, I can't think of the word. It's close to invasion. It may come to me in a minute, but just desecrated by somebody. And so you can express that and talk about that. But you get the idea that didn't define them. And it really wasn't the final word. It wasn't the whole context of what was happening here. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. In this, this persecution, you saw in it their attack against you because of Jesus Christ. And why did you joyfully accept the plundering? Since you knew you had better possession and abiding one. That's the only reason. It's the only reason. That's fine. I've got a better possession and I see it. I can taste it practically. The glory of it invades my life. I can let this go. It governed them. It governed them. And so for us, disease and injury and loss and old age and disaster and death do not define us. They're real, but they're not ultimate. They're not permanent. They do not define us because we are the children of God. And as John says in 1 John 3, it has not yet been seen what we will be. We are the children of God. 
And we are defined by this. I don't know how in the world it will happen, but one day this poor person that can't even figure his life out will judge angels. You can count on it. I don't know how in the world I can't even run my life, but I'm going to, by God's grace, be one of those reigning in the world. How in the world is that going to happen? But he promises it, and that's who I am. It doesn't look like we could ever love one another perfectly, but one day we will. It doesn't look like we'll have perfectly strong bodies and that we'll never grow weak. That we could be perfectly happy every moment of our lives, but it will happen. And that defines us. So, faith is confidence in the unseen. It is confidence. And particularly, you see, in all of this, you can't escape this. It is confidence in what he has said about himself. It's confidence in his promise. It's confidence in his word. It's confidence then ultimately in God's reliability and his faithfulness. I know who he is. I know what he's told me. And I'm banking my life upon that. Even my attitude toward my suffering is based on what God has promised. So we live by promise. And so what God does for you and me He puts himself out on the table and says, here I am, take me. And you look, you're kind of looking at him and you say, well, what are these handles I see? That's how I grab hold of it. And every handle is called promise, promise, promise. You lay hold of him and you grasp him and you cling to him and you find joy in him because he's promised himself completely to you. And again, that's why second Peter, Peter says, That we partake of him through promise, through promise. And that's what this writer is basically saying, that faith lays hold of the unseen and the future and makes it real. And we live accordingly, as even these people indicated. And every example will show us that every example coming up will be people who didn't see what was coming, who couldn't see the reality, but they put themselves in God's hands and stepped out on his promise. Then interestingly, secondly, and lastly, that was a quick lastly, wasn't it? Uh, Wow, ten minutes and we're on part two, the last part. Um, Creation. We've seen first confidence, now creation. The foundational Confidence that faith is, but now the foundation of creation for faith. Now, when he says this, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. This is a personal statement. That is, it's it's something that we believe about him, who he is. The particular relationship that we bear to him, the certain regard we have for him, we regard him as creator. Okay, not just we believe this fact, but we believe that he it was created by God and therefore God is the creator with whom we have to do and all the implications that there is a creator, that this world came from him. 
so that we embrace him as creator and everything that means for our lives. In its place in the Bible, Genesis 1 is foundation to everything else in the scriptures. In Exodus, we have uh, God's release of Israel from Egypt and so many ways that it's described bring us back to Genesis 1. And we realize the one who made the world and controls the light and created the light, he's the one that's creating the darkness in Egypt. And the one who made all of the animals creeping things, now he's multiplying those in judgment against Israel. This is only the creator could do this. So the creator is bringing judgment and the creator is the one who is releasing his people. The creator of all the heavens and the earth is the one acting for Joshua or David. That's the unique, singular perspective out of all the plethora of polytheism in the ancient world. There is one light thousands of years ago. It's the Hebrew scriptures coming out of nowhere, out of the blue, so to speak, out of the mind of God, we believe, declaring who God is, the creator of the world. And there is no concept in the Bible that is not related to this belief in God as a creator. There's no concept of sin apart from God being our creator. His character is the pattern for our character. He gives us commands in keeping with his character, his holiness and love. He alone has the authority to do so. He's the one who made us and owns us. So he expresses the, his will to us, what is good and wise and perfect out of his character. That's the only way we understand what disobedience is. It's disobedience against our creator. And without a creator, there is no disobedience. There is no sin. There is no moral responsibility. We understand because he's the creator, he has unlimited wisdom to know what is best for us. He has unlimited goodness, so everything he commands flows from that goodness. He has unlimited knowledge. And so in our obedience or disobedience, he knows our hearts and lives inside out, top to bottom. He alone as creator can assess us and see our desperate condition. He alone as the creator can bring a remedy to us. He alone as our creator can rescue us and transform us. He alone as creator can then keep us and protect us. He alone can bring about our final restoration, our final resurrection and the restoration of all creation. He can do this because he's the maker of heaven and earth. So apart from believing in him as creator, Close your Bibles. Go home. There is no scripture. There is no meaning to life. If God is not creator. The whole Bible is a joke apart from believing that God made the world. So Westcott, an English commentator in the late 19th century, wrote this. 
The belief in creation is the necessary foundation for the life of faith in all its manifestations. Think of that statement. He's saying that there is not one thing that you believe about God in regard to your salvation that isn't in some way dependent on, related to the fact that He is your Creator. Our being able to be forgiven is based on the fact that a God of infinite knowledge against whom we've sinned can do something about that and has the authority to forgive us. And then has the power to do it right so that when we're forgiven, you can believe you're forgiven. The Creator Himself, the Judge Himself has forgiven you. And because He's the Creator, you can be made a new creature. Just as He made the creatures in Genesis 1, He can remake His creatures at will. Because He has absolute authority and power to do so. And nothing can stop Him when He decides to do it. If he's going to save someone that could be an atheist like C.S. Lewis, sorry, bud, you're going to heaven. (laughs) Why? Because he's the creator. Psalm 121. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. What a great verse. Our salvation is in the name of the one who made heaven and earth. Our forgiveness is in the name of the one who made heaven and earth. Our possibility and reality of being changed, even our sinful habits, our perspectives that have been with us for years, are really being different, are being different progressively and significantly and consistently different, is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. You think it's not going to happen? You think it can't happen? You think something's going to stand in the way of the Lord who made heaven and earth? No. It's the sovereign God. Our growth in this place and every aspect of our worship is going to be done in the name of the one who made heaven and earth. Our ability to experience a growing unity and love as a body is going to be done in the name of the one who made heaven and earth. Our being able to be a congregation of mercy and love to our community. Our being able to make known the gospel of Jesus Christ by word and deed would be done in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Nothing that we are or ever will be or do is apart from our God who made heaven and earth. So, just a few things then. You might say ramifications, implications for us to think about. In fact, I would say this. Here's what you're going to believe if you believe that he created the world. If you really believe that he created the world, here's some of the things that you'll begin to be convinced of. And not in the abstract, but I want to tell you personally. For instance, number one, that you would believe in his power. But not just in the abstract that, well, he made stars, he made, yeah, I know all that. Well, you know, like, here's our galaxy, we've got billions of stars in our galaxy. Yeah, that's huge. We can't even fathom the, the distance of those stars in our own little galaxy. And yet, this galaxy is just part of a little cluster of galaxies. 
And the distance between each of those little galaxies in our cluster is boggles your mind. And then you go from that cluster to one of these other clusters way over here. And then you realize each of these is just a speck in the universe. And you just, you know, you just hang your arms and think, how huge is this God? But I'm not even talking about that, although that's part of your meditation as creator. But it's that power that God has to do with me. See, that's what faith does. It draws this God near to say, this God of unlimited power is devoted to our good. Oh, Lord God. How are you going to pray to that kind of God? How are you going to fight against sin when the Lord of heaven and earth is engaged against your sin with you? How are we going to minister in his name if we know that the Lord of heaven and earth and his unlimited power is devoted to us? It's interesting when another aspect of his character is his wisdom. I mean, you, if you've read Darwin's Black Box, a, a book that tries to challenge evolution by showing that uh, any, any single part of, of these intricate details of the human body, for instance, if any one of them wasn't there, the whole thing wouldn't work. And, and how it's impossible that it could be pieced together, you know, bit by bit. And he describes the working of the eye, which we don't have time to go into. Um, and after you hear that, you just want to fall down and worship him at the wisdom. How could he figure that out? And how can he make your DNA so that it ends up producing that kind of eye? How, how could he do that? But brothers and sisters, do you trust his wisdom? Do I trust his wisdom? Then I use his wisdom in creation to say, wait a minute. This creator has given us a Bible. What? You, you mean the one that made my eye? The one that made... He's spoken to us? <laughs> you see, we just, we just treat him like a piece of dirt in regard to his word, that this God who's made all these things that should make us fall before him. And then you think, and he spoke to us. <laughs> Proverbs 8 does this. When wisdom is talking, wisdom says, and I was there. The wisdom that we're supposed to follow, the wisdom we're supposed to listen to and, and align our lives with, he says, and I was there at creation. So you see, it's one piece. The wise God who made all these intricate things, he might be able to tell you about your moral life. Just maybe. Maybe he could talk to you about your sexuality. Maybe he could speak to you about the relationship of a husband and a wife. It speaks of his steadfast love. It speaks of his faithfulness. As I mentioned some time back, Vern Poitras saying the laws of nature are just a measurement of the faithfulness of God. That he always makes a body the size of the earth have this kind of drawing power exactly all the time. That's because he's faithful. Sun and moon. These things teach us, proclaim to us the faithfulness, the reliability of this God. We know his presence it's amazing how Scripture pictures this world as his temple sanctuary. 
Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. The picture is the whole of creation is just one temple sanctuary in which he's to be worshipped. And guess what? Inanimate creation is pictured already as praising him. Because that's what it's made for. So we've even got trees clapping. We've even got seas roaring with praise to God. Surely we're not going to be trying to catch up to trees being convicted by oceans. But leading the pack as the ones that really know him, the ones who've really experienced him because we're made in his image. And we of all creation have the capacity to enjoy this God. He is present He is present in everything you enjoy in this world. You are experiencing Him in your experience of any goodness that you have in this world. And certainly it speaks of His absolute control and authority in this world. He alone is Lord. He alone is Lord. You see, all of this shows why Romans 1, when it begins to outline man's sin, it begins right here. He didn't honor him as creator. See? And then every kind of immorality and wickedness flows from that one thing. He's not recognized as creator. Well, there's so much more, of course, that can be said. Let me just say this. It not only accents your and my sinfulness that we would neglect this God, a God of such capacity, so majestic and good and glorious, that we would live in spite of him, despising him. But at the same time that this revelation convicts us, it also reveals to us the unlimited power he has to rescue us. It's one and the same. This power that we've ignored, that we've not praised, that we've not enjoyed. Do we live a day ever in complete delight of the glorious God? No, we don't. And yet this same God reveals himself as the one who enables us to fall helplessly before him. Because he is not only the creator, but he is the savior. And all the glory that we've neglected and hated is now employed to save us from that neglect and hatred. For the very one who created the world, the Son of God himself, laid himself on a cross to die in the place of his creation. Do you trust in Jesus Christ to rescue you from your sins? What kind of creator would do that? And I've told you this before, but <clears throat> I used, I've had a lot of struggles, as I've told you, over the suffering in the world. How could God allow it? How could he plan a world of suffering? But I tell you, this one amazes me more than any other. How could he plan a world in which he was going to suffer beyond any other creature? How could he do that? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just plan your own comfort, you know? But... He's a God of love. He's a God who gives himself away. So the very structure of the world meant my love will be on display and I will give myself away at infinite cost because that's who I am. Will you neglect such a creator? Let us pray.
O Lord, maker of heaven and earth, in you alone is our salvation. Lord, your power alone can draw us to yourself, can give us faith, can turn us away from our idols and our fears and our excuses and our busyness and everything else that we want to use to replace you as the glory and desire of our life. Oh, Lord, we have every weakness, every symptom of death and destruction. And yet you are the maker of heaven and earth. And if you stretch forth your hand to save us, we'll be saved. We're like those blind men, Lord. We're crying out, Lord, have mercy. And all you had to do was stretch out your hand and they could see. Oh, Lord, in all of our blindness, our spiritual and moral disease, our messed up desires and motives, we bring them all to you just broken and sick. Lord, by your mighty power, forgive us and change us and keep us and protect us and bring us to be with you forever and ever. And in the meantime, use us, Lord, that we might love others as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our last hymn is... uh